Hi, it's me again. Even though this episode is number two, I recorded it first on February 2nd, the day of the Super Bowl. You'll notice there's no talk of COVID-19. Again, the conversation feels like the distant past, but the topics in it are more relevant than ever. So without further ado, enjoy. My name is John Vasilietis. Welcome to Unspeakable. My next guest is a great guy. He's 19 years old, but that doesn't mean he's too young to take on the political establishment on Long Island. His name is Skylar Johnson, and he's running for the New York State Senate. Skylar, thank you. Welcome to the show. Hey, John. How are you? I'm good. Is it exhausting being a full-time student and at the very same time being a full-time political candidate? You know, John, it was at first, but I've managed to find a really great balance. I've spoken to all my professors about what I'm doing. Most of the other students know that I'm running, and I've managed to make it part of the campaign. I actually started receiving messages from other students because they had first heard that I was running from their professors. So I've managed to make school a part of the campaign and vice versa. I learn a lot there, and I learn a lot on the campaign trail, and they often translate into each other. Have you been finding a lot of support on campus? Do people know what you're doing? Has it become a, a big thing on on campus? Oh, absolutely, yes. My name has been spreading quite quickly because they hear about the student that's running for the New York State Senate. So I receive a lot of support there because the young people there have historically felt disenfranchised. They're not engaged by their politicians. So now that they have someone that's one of their own running, they're very excited. That's something I did want to talk to you about. Your campaign is speaking to the affordability crisis on Long Island, speaking to young people directly and the issues they care about. Our district isn't you know, usually primed for a progressive candidate. Have you found that to be a challenge while you're on the campaign trail talking to, you know, regular Long Islanders that maybe aren't on the college campus? I have not, no, because the progressive platform is the human platform now. A lot of these voters, no matter where they come from, are actually experiencing the same issues. I've spoken to people who are in their 60s whose family have lived here for literally hundreds of years who are now being forced to leave the island because they can't afford it anymore. So no matter what they're from, they're facing the same issues that I'm preaching on the college campuses. That's really interesting. It's, you know, I always hear people who kind of watch and consume the right-wing Fox News media, but when you really talk about the core issues, you talk about Social Security, you talk about healthcare, will, will they have it or won't they have it? How expensive will it be? It kind of pierces that bubble and it, it reframes the entire debate. So it's you know interesting that you found that success. When I hear about the toil and the uh, amount of energy and effort it takes to be on the campaign trail, to be speaking, to be writing speeches, it sounds honestly like super exhausting. How do you manage that? Is it something you love to do? Is it a means to an end? So it's something that I love to do because I know that everything I'm doing is eventually helping people. Even if I'm not elected, I'm spreading ideas that are going to make a difference here. If I start speaking out, other other politicians, other elected officials are going to pick up what I'm saying and use it as part of their own platforms. So yes, it's tiring, but it's worth it. And it's become something that's become an integral part of my life. You're obviously not a national figure, but you are speaking about these big ideas. Do you find when you, you know, you say you talk to people, you pierce the bubble with issues that are affecting them. 
What do you think the role is of a New York State senator in terms of the national debates we're having in this country? So New York is always seen as a leader on issues. And if we pass reforms here, we can get them passed throughout the country. Even though I'm not running to be the representative of someone in California, I've actually had people in California donate to the campaign because they see hope here. I've had donations everywhere from California to Alaska. It doesn't really matter where they live. They just want to see stuff change here because they hope that it's going to affect them there. And what do you attribute to that? Sure. So the issues that were the issues that we're pushing, the things that we're talking, isn't local just to New York. It's definitely affecting people in New York. But people across the United States are seeing similar issues here. No matter where you live, you're most likely dealing with a healthcare issue right now. You're most likely trying to figure out how you're going to afford healthcare, the cost of medicine, premiums. So while I'm running for New York State government and my issues are meant to be New York specific, there are similar issues throughout the new, throughout the United States that are really affecting people. And I assume you're getting donations from people from California due to your TikTok, uh, you know, blow up. That's certainly how I heard about you. I was reading Verge article. Uh, it was about Joshua Collins, but your name also came up. Is Has that grown your following in a targeted way or just in a national way? So it's done a bit of both. We've been increasing social media really rapidly. We actually gained 2,000 Twitter followers this week. Uh, I've managed to reach out on a national level and really speak to people. However, it always comes back to New York. So because of TikTok's analytics, it always looks for people within Long Island first. And we've reached a lot of people within the district that are then donating and are then pledging votes. A lot of these people, it's their first election that they're eligible to vote. And they're really excited to cast their first vote for me in this election because they see me as a peer that's going to go and represent, represent them on government. However, Doing things like TikTok, like Twitter, are allowing us to then reach across the United States and speak to people from all over. It's a bit of both. That's fascinating. I mean, this is such a new platform, and you're really one of the first people to be utilizing it for a public good, for politics. It's it's an incredible thing. You know, the thing I love about TikTok that maybe isn't on Instagram, certainly not Instagram, not Facebook or Twitter, is it's kind of a, a level setter. There's this, like, intrinsic authenticity to the platform you're not under beauty lighting i know the video i saw of you you're just like i think you're laying down in your bed and you just have the phone right in front of you do was that like a strategic decision to go on tiktok or was that just i use this platform my friends use this platform it's natural. So you're right. The first video that w- that we filmed was was on in my bed. I was you're seeing my you're seeing the the headboard of my bed there. Uh, we had been discussing using TikTok for a while. I had seen it a lot. I had really liked what I was seeing, so I was interested in moving forward with it. However, I wasn't sure at first how we were going to use it. So I started looking at the app. I got some inspiration from both political candidates and just people who are making fun videos across the United States, and I decided to make that first video that night. How quick was the response to that? So when I first filmed the video, I remember thinking, you know, I hope I get like 100 views on this. Uh, I went to bed and I woke up and realized that I had had 300 people like it. (laughs) And I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. And throughout the day, it all of a sudden started spiking up to that was about two weeks ago. We now have 30,000 likes on the video. Oh so it was it was exponential. I was hoping to get, like I said, a few a few likes and 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 maybe a hundred views on the first video, and we ended up with about eighty thousand views on the first video. My goodness, have you found the most success on that platform out of all your social? So it it, it actually kind of changes daily depending on what we're doing. So TikTok was the first platform that we were really able to very successfully and organically utilize 
getting donations from. We made a video about potential opponents in the district, and people responded from both New York and across the country and donated to the campaign to see a young person get elected. We've also seen a lot of success on both Twitter and Instagram with that. Like I said earlier, we gained 2,000 followers on Twitter this week. Uh, we actually had someone from within the district reach out and go, I wish you were old enough to run against Lee Zeldin, our congressman. I'm looking forward to seeing what you. I'm looking forward wow. to seeing what you're going to do in the Senate. You know, something about TikTok, like I said, it is this intrinsic authenticity. That's the great part about it. But I do also think that the negative part about it is it, it forces you to simplify and you know remove all nuance essentially from your positions, even more so than say Twitter. How do you? combat that do you think it's a, a net positive to use the platform do you think there's in you know pitfalls with the platform so you're, that's something that we saw immediately where someone reached out and went well how are you going to pay for a healthcare plan and i was so limited by characters even in response that i couldn't give them a natural response so i directed them to the website for the bill i was trying to pass and that's kind of how we communicated with them while it forces us to simplify the issues on the flip side, it forces us to simplify the issues. <laughs> we can't have 20-minute discussions. So instead, I find the best parts, I find the most important parts of each of these issues, and I put it out there. In my first video, I said, we should stop the world from burning. People shouldn't die from health expenses. And that's really the core part of our message. No matter what I want to do, that's what I want people to understand. We're not fighting for ridiculous over-the-top ideas here. We're fighting for basic human rights. Are you following the national democratic primary yes to an extent i tried to stay relatively neutral in the democratic presidential primary because i think i'd go insane if i was trying to spend all my time on both that and then and the local issues however a lot of times what's going on there mirrors what's going on here so the top polling issue a lot of times on a national stage is health care and we see that here when i call people in the district one of their main issues is health care because a lot of people are on medicare or on employer health insurance and are worried that they're going to get kicked off or be denied for important coverage are you endorsing any particular candidate? So I have not endorsed any any particular political candidates. My platforms generally fall in line with either Senator Sanders or Senator Warren, depending on the specific plan. However, I, I stay relatively neutral in the Democratic primary itself. That makes sense. I want to talk to you about labels. When you're a young candidate or, you know, a candidate that's primarily on TikTok, speaking to a younger audience, a progressive, the label socialist gets thrown around a lot do you identify as a socialist what do you identify as so the you're right the label socialist has been brought up since the day i announced the first article that was ever published about my run it it was, it was an interesting mix of people going, oh, look, a crazy socialist communist, whatever you want to say, and people arguing against that term and fighting back. We actually had a decent amount of people that we've never met show up and go, it's great what this guy's doing. Stop labeling him immediately. And that's kind of something that we think is important. These labels in the end don't really mean anything. I'm absolutely fine if you want to call yourself a socialist, if you want to call yourself a democratic socialist. A lot of my friends who are running for offices around the country call themselves one or the other. For me, I don't think it's important because I think it distracts from mm -hmm. the message. I think that if I went out there and went, I'm a democratic socialist or I'm a socialist or anything else really, people stop listening to what you're saying well, after couldn't that. You argue, couldn't you argue that it gives you a certain sense of power or protection? I mean, Republicans, no matter what, 
your opponents are going to be throwing around, he's a socialist, he's a socialist. If you can just get ahead of that and say, yeah, I'm a democratic socialist, so what? Of, of course, and you're right there. That's that's something that was actually brought up on the national stage, the idea that no matter what we did, we were going to be called we were going to be called crazy socialists. So that is a really good point, the idea that if I come out and say it early, then it stops an attack. However, I think that right now, this early on, it, it would also distract from what we're trying to say. Because my I, the, the issues that we're pushing, it's not about socialism, it's about helping people. When I talk about healthcare, the word socialized doesn't really mean anything in those terms. I just want to make sure that people have healthcare so that way they don't die because they're cutting their insulin in half. I want to make sure I'm helping people, and if the labels are going to hurt that in the end, I'm going to stay away from them. Let's talk about your healthcare plan. How would you pay for it? Sure. So the bill is called the New York Health Act. It's actually it's, it's one vote away from passing in the New York State Senate. It would be the most comprehensive health care plan in the United States. It's single-payer health care. It would mean no more pro, no more premiums, deductibles, or co-pays. The bill builds on existing infrastructure. So anyone that's using Medi- that's using Medicare and Medicaid already, as well as veterans insurance, any, any state-funded insurance, this would be built on top of that. So we would basically just be adding everyone to these existing plans, meaning that the infrastructure is always there. We're not just trying to fund an entire new system. This comes from multiple sources, including including payroll tax as well as employer tax, to make sure that no one source ever becomes the sole reliance on this funding. It makes sure that it's tiered. So if you're making $300,000 a year as opposed to $3,000 a year, you're not paying the same thing. You pay pretty much what you can into the system, and it's meant to spread it throughout New York. So that way, everyone is covered regardless of how much they make. So you get elected to Albany. It's 2020. 2021. 2021. I'd be sworn in, yes. Okay. 2021, you're elected, you're in Albany. What is the first thing you do? So when I'd be, if, I, if I'm sworn in in January of next year of 2021, the first thing I would do would be to bring the New York Health Act back to a vote and to get this passed. Like I said, we're one vote away from getting this passed. That would be the first thing. That would be my first legislative priority up there. Do your opponents in the Democratic primary support or oppose this legislation? So my opponents have been very unclear about their stances on the New York Health Act. Even the ones that say they supported then will kind of backtrack on it when when you start to probe more deeply. I'm very committed to passing this bill. I've been calling people about it. I've spoken to a number of activist groups, of progressive groups about it. I was actually in a conference with the man who wrote the bill, Richard Gottfried. He's an assemblyman. And we discussed exactly how to get this bill passed. I've been, I've been since day one committed to passing this bill, and I have not seen that type of dedication from my opponents yet. Have you worked in any capacity in politics before your run? Yes. So I managed a town council race in my town last year, actually. I got hired as campaign manager. I got hired as campaign manager on this local race. I started as communications <laughs> director three days after I met them, and I eventually was promoted to campaign manager. Wait, tell us about that. You're How old are you, 18 years old? So I'm 19. I was 18 at the time, yes. So I really wanted to be more involved in politics. I was already trying to get involved. During the 2018 campaign cycle, I emailed Perry Gershon, who was running for Congress at the time. He is running again. And I started throwing, I started kind of spitballing (laughs) ideas with him. We emailed back and forth for about a month. I spoke to a lot of his campaign staff, including his campaign manager and his chief strategist, about some of the things he could do to improve his showing, especially among young voters. 
I saw that there was going to be a campaign kickoff for a town council race in my area, and I showed up at the kickoff. I got there early. I started talking to them, and I eventually started going to events with them. Three days later, they asked me to be an official part of the campaign. So you were a campaign manager. So my first role in that campaign was communications director, and then about a month later, they said, you're already doing the work of campaign manager. Would you like to Would you like to actually Did become campaign manager? Did they have a campaign manager at the time? So the candidate's husband was acting as campaign manager and was struggling with it because he was trying to balance being a father... Being a husband, having a full-time job, and being campaign manager, and it just was not working for him. So we realized that I would be better suited for that role. So you're campaign manager for this hyper-local election, and then a year later you decide to run yourself. What were the lessons you learned in your position that you think translate to your success now? So pretty much everything that I learned during that campaign was invaluable. When we petitioned for the first time when we got the signatures to actually be on the ballot i learned a lot about that process i learned a lot about how it worked about what we needed to do i i was able to learn a lot about messaging to figure out exactly what resonated with voters i never want to i never want to be fake on this field and i was able to actually speak to voters directly and hear what they wanted what they what they need to survive here and i was able to look at my platform and figure out exactly what we could do to help them it was never about telling them what they wanted to hear it was about doing what we need to to let them survive so that campaign was invaluable in letting me learn learn from voters as well as letting me learn the behind the scenes of a campaign how grassroots is your organization so my campaign is 100% grass is 100% grassroots i'm We're receiving only small donations. We're not taking money from corporations. We're not taking money from super PACs. We're not taking money from special interests. All this money is coming from people across both the state and the country who just want to see a change. I've received a lot of donations from students, a lot of them from people on disability, and a lot of them from senior citizens who don't have much to give but want to give $20 because they see hope in this campaign. Amazing. What would you say to somebody maybe in your position, maybe a little older or your age, who has dreams of public office but doesn't know what to do? If anyone around the country is looking to get involved, find a local race, find anyone that's running and just reach out to them. They're almost always responsive because they're they're doing this for the first time often too. If you look for a new candidate and just go and talk to them for a while, you'll be able to learn a lot. You're never too young to run for public office, and you're never too inexperienced to run for public office. We have a system that's designed to allow anyone from anywhere to run, and I think that we need to take advantage of that. So if you're an 18-year-old college student sitting there, and you've never held public office, but you have dreams of writing public policy, you can do it now. Even if it's even if you've never considered it before, you can look at what's up for election in the next year. You can start talking to people, start talking to your local, local uh, elected officials. I would also suggest going to local committees for whatever party you're in and discussing with them because you can really hear some of what's going on in the area. I think that's a really smart message, and I think it's a powerful one that people don't really address. I, You know, if you look at your Instagram feed and you see um, influencers, you see all these people doing big things with a lot of money. They are often in studios with makeup and the best lighting. Um, And then you compare that with some 18, 19-year-old, 20-year-old who doesn't have resources, who wants to make a big difference. It's almost like a David and Goliath situation. But if you kind of remove the, you know, national ambition and you start small and you start local and you say, let me try to change my community first and then you grow from there. I think that's something that perhaps might have been the way forward past generations, but uh, hasn't been utilized in the way it is now.
Right. And, and you're absolutely right there. And I liked what you said about influencers and what you're seeing on your Instagram feed. And that's actually become a problem with politics, too. We start to treat candidates as if they're up on a pedestal, as if they're untouchable. It's ridiculous. Yes. When I first started reaching out to congressional candidates, I was thinking of them as if they were on a whole other level for me. And if, like, if I was worthy to talk to them. And then all of a sudden, I started talking to them, and I realized they were just people who didn't know what they were doing either, who were doing this for the first time, and who are trying to, and, and, and who are struggling themselves. And it was really enlightening. The events that I'm speaking at are events with, with local people, a lot of them who haven't really been invo- involved in politics before. I had the privilege of speaking at the Women's March for 2020 in, in Port Jefferson only oh, wow. last month. Yeah, And a lot of the people there hadn't really been involved in politics either ever or in a long time. I was able to interact with them. I had one. I had one woman who I was. It was actually snowing out that day, so I was wearing my hood, and she hadn't seen me speak. She had come later, and as I was talking, I mentioned one of my policy plans, and she went, "Wait, what's your name?" And I said, "I'm Skylar Johnson," and she went, "Skylar Johnson, candidate Skylar Johnson." <laughs> it turned out that she had read about me in Newsday, and they had been discussing me. The fact that there was a 19-year-old running, and she asked to take a picture with me because she said her husband wouldn't be able to believe that she had met me there. That's funny. I want to be able to touch to talk to the community like that. I don't want to just be some name on the paper or on the internet. I want to actually be talking to each individual voter so they understand who I am. What's something that you wish you would have done differently? Do you have any regrets so far that you made on the campaign trail or have you done everything to a T perfectly? So I've never met a candidate that's done everything to the T perfectly. <laughs> um, when when I launched, there's there are I wish that I I wish that I had changed the timing of my launch a bit. It did work out. It did work out well, but there were some things that I think we needed to have more prepared, and some things that we over prepared. We just needed to balance balance things out a little bit better before we launched. You're never going to get everything perfectly, and you're always going to have a, there's hindsight's twenty twenty. Uh, you're always going to have things that you're that you wanted to do differently in the past. If I changed the timing of my launch, I would just make sure that we had everything ready to go, that we had spoken to newspapers beforehand, so that way they weren't surprised when they received our press release. We did receive a decent amount of news coverage as it is, but I want to make sure that in the future we build up our contacts with the media so that way we can have candid relations with them when we first start. Have the press inquiries continued? Yes. So the a lot of the press is spontaneous where we'll, we'll show up in a newspaper for one reason or another. There were a couple of papers that mistakenly omitted us from their from their stories when they when we first started. They left out the fact that we were running and we reached out to them and they felt bad and wrote and wrote stories on us later. Um, I showed up in a local East Hampton paper because I've been spending a lot of time standing in solidarity with the Shinnecock tribe. I'm not sure if you know what's going on out there. No? There's currently a Native American burial ground that is being torn up to build a mansion. Uh, and the Shinnecock, really? yes, yes, it's horrible. So the Shinnecock tribe is fighting that with everything that they have. But unfortunately, the town of Southampton refuses to issue an injunction on the land. What? So there was actually a temporary stop for about two days, and then they just started building again. The stop was lifted, and they were able to continue. So I've been very upset about that from the day I found out about it. So I've been spending a lot of time standing with them. How long has that been going on for? So. That's debatable because what I'd like to say is that this has been going on since before the United States existed. (laughs) (laughs) The the Shinnecock tribe was around long before New York existed. Uh, The the, the burial ground that they're currently building on, from from my understanding, the Shinnecock, before they just had their reservation, they were on encampments around what is now Southampton Town. The burial ground was next to one of those encampments. They were eventually forced inwards. The Shinnecock Hills have been a a, a subject of, of... 
a lot of fights because they keep trying to develop there they keep trying to build or tear things up and that's not acceptable now this this particular piece of land has only been going on for a few months but it's 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 just a symptom it's, of this larger fight exactly. yeah it's not a new fight no one was surprised when they heard that this was happening so the injunction has not been uh you know set that means when are they building when do they start building so they've already started they've oh. already started build or they've already started building i i i actually just got an update on it yesterday where as far as we know there's no difference on the land uh what's actually happening is that the construction companies that are involved in the project from everything from laying the foundation to the window company they actually don't know what's going on there so a big part of uh, they they never say protesting a big part of protecting this land has been just going up to workers and going are you aware what you're currently building on because they've already disturbed artifacts so they know that they continue to build they're going to end up they're going to end up digging up bones wait that's really interesting so you go to the workers on this construction site you speak to them one-on-one and you get a different uh response than you would from the contractor yes Yes, a lot, a lot of the, a lot of these people are shocked because remember these pe- these people weren't there when this contract was bought. They weren't there when the Shinnecock was going up to South Dakota Town and asking them to stop. They've been hired to do this project. So when you tell them, did you know that you're building on an ancient Native American burial ground? Actually, a friend of mine who's part of the Shinnecock tribe has been standing out there with a sign that says "Ancient Indian Burial Grounds" to try to get people's attention, and it works really well. Most of them are shocked and they are very angry about where they're building. Unfortunately, a lot of them are still worried about their jobs because if they stop this contract, they could be fired so it kind of becomes a catch-22 there however they have succeeded in delaying construction a lot of days because of this because the workers end up calling their companies and asking if this is true and asking what's going on so it ends up causing a causing a bit of a rift in the companies themselves because people don't realize what's happening there so if you get elected what kind of things would you be able to do to stop the taking of land from these tribes sure so there's there's a lot there's a lot there first of all what i'd like to see is new york actually purchase this land from southampton town and then deed it to the Shinnecock, because that way the Shinnecock don't have to worry about it anymore. This is stolen land. I think the least that we can do is take what's left of it and give it back to them. We don't need to develop another another mansion there. In fact, from what I've seen, the people of Southampton don't even want those mansions. There's a lot of people from Southampton Town driving by and honking and waving to the Shinnecock because they're just happy to see someone fighting fighting all the (laughs) development. Uh, We also, New York also doesn't have really strong grave desecration laws, which is what's allowing What's allowing these people to get away with this? I would I would like to pass legislation tightening these laws. I'm currently working with the Shinnecock tribe to try to figure out exactly what I can do if I'm elected. But one thing that I can do is just bring awareness. Can you imagine if we went to people and told them, "Did you know they're building? Did, did you know they're building? They're going to tear up our cemeteries and pine lawn to act to, to build mansions here?" People would be horrified. Right. It's the same thing here. It's just not marked because it, because the Shinnecock tribe was forced off the land. Well, that brings me to a larger question. I know AOC who is a progressive icon, a lot of her, you know, critics will say she's not in the business of governing, she's in the business of being an activist. What do you think the role of a public official is? Is there a difference between being an activist? Is there a difference between being a governor, gov- uh, governing or can you walk and chew gum at the same time? You can walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> you can be an activist, you can be a public official, but every public official should be an activist. Right. The public officials who I've met, the public officials who have argued with that are not activists end up not helping the community. They end up hurting it because they're not out there actually speaking to people. If I'm elected, even if I can't go to every protest anymore, you better believe I'm going to be calling the people that organize them and figuring out exactly how we can help them. Well, it's also like, why would you do the job what's the point of being a public official being a leader in the community if you don't have a strong pov right if you don't you know have a vision for what things 
should be like, you know, even if they aren't that way now. Right. And if you've ever seen AOC actually question someone in the legislature, she's oh terrifying goodness. and she yeah. tears them apart like none of the senior officials do because she's been out on the front lines of these fights and she knows what needs to be asked. She's spoken to the community leaders. She's spoken to people from all the from all these foundations, from all these organizations who then she brings their questions back to DC and asks them without without, without being guarded at all. And it works really well. And like you said, it gives me an interesting and a very important point of view here, and that's what I'm going to be able to bring to Albany. I'm with the activists, and I know what we need here. I think it's so interesting to talk to you specifically about social media. I'm a marketing guy. I'm an advertising. But you are a young candidate, and I, I don't think it was shown more clearly than when Mark Zuckerberg was testifying, and you had all these congressmen and senators just completely not know what to ask this guy. I mean, their questions just didn't make any sense. So, you know, you use the platforms to your advantage. You even mentioned the word analytics. It was one of like the first words you said on this interview. These are all useful tools. But as a young person, if you are elected to public office, do you think you have a responsibility to create legislation around social media and what would that legislation look like? Oh, absolutely. So a bill was just passed in New York that prevents uh, that prevents credit uh, any companies that, that, that do credit scores from using social media as a factor in your credit score. The only two people in the entire New York state government to vote against it were Ken Laval, the incumbent for the seat who's now retiring, and Anthony Palumbo, the man who is now going to run for the seat. <laughs> They're the only two representatives in New York state to vote against this bill. And that's an issue. This is a privacy issue. We don't want to create a system where, where credit companies are trying to look at your opinions and go, well, they, they're, they're voting against the candidate that we that Why we like. Why do you like. think they voted against it? Yeah, uh, I don't know actually. I looked at what they were. I looked at what they were doing, and I couldn't find a clear reason for it. There's one of two reasons why they would vote no on this bill. One, they have no idea what the bill is actually about, and two, they're being lobbied by credit card right. companies. Skyler, thanks for joining the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, John. I really appreciate you having me. Best of luck. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unspeakable. It'd mean the world to me if you could follow my podcast on Spotify or subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts. For more info, visit theunspeakablepod.com.